Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 451. It's titled, How Much Should You Invest in Stocks? The Art of Position Sizing in a Volatile Market. Back in the mid-1990s, one of the most successful hedge funds was long-term capital management. The fund was founded in 1994 by two Nobel Prize laureates, Myron Scholes and Robert Merton, along with a number of very smart traders from Solomon Brothers, including John Merriweather and Victor Hagani. The initial amount of capital raised was very large for a new hedge fund, a billion dollars. The returns in the first three years were incredible. The net of fee return from inception through 1997 was 31.2% annualized. The fund never lost money two months in a row and grew to $7.5 billion, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, even though it was closed to new investors since mid-1995. Long-term capital management's investment approach exploited the price differences between various financial instruments, such as government bonds, corporate bonds, stocks, currencies. The strategy is known as relative value arbitrage, and the idea is that while related securities, their prices might diverge for a short time due to supply and demand imbalances, that ultimately the prices converge to their true relative value. Each individual bet on its own, if unlevered, wasn't very risky, but the fund used a great deal of leverage in order to magnify the returns of these small bets. The strategy obviously worked very well until it didn't. In August 1998, Russia defaulted on its government debt, sparking a great deal of financial turmoil and volatility. For example, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index fell 29% just in the month of August 1998. And the market's move the different asset types that long-term capital management was using in its strategy, the, the moves were extreme, much greater than their models assumed. And as a result, long-term capital management lost 90%. The New York Federal Reserve organized a consortium of large counterparties, investment banks, commercial banks that traded with long-term capital management that were exposed to Huge losses because they had provided leverage to long-term capital management. And the New York Fed organized basically a bailout where those counterparties invested $3.6 billion in the fund and got 90% ownership and bought time for the fund to be liquidated. And in the end, those investment banks that invested earned 10% on their capital but not the general partners nor the limited partners in long-term capital management. Victor Hagani said he personally lost over $100 million in that fund. He wrote, I was 35 years old at the time, the youngest of the long-term capital management partners. I saw that all my partners, many whom were like family to me, also thought the fund was a very attractive investment. On top of all this, the fund was far from a black box to me. In fact, it was the investment that I understood the best of all things I could possibly invest in. Hagani was trying to figure out what percent of his wealth should he invest in this investment that he understood and was poised to do extremely well. 
He continued, in the end, I had to decide on something. I felt that no matter how attractive an investment opportunity might be, I want to keep an amount on the side invested in the safest asset possible that would support about 40 to 50 years of what my family was spending at the time. Even if the fund lost 100%, which it lost 90%, and he lost all of his investment. And at the end of the day, he set aside 20% of his net worth and then put 80% in the fund. A few years after the fund imploded, Hagani wrote, after more than 20 years in finance, you'd have thought that I'd figure out how to invest my family savings. Well, it was 2002, I just turned 40, and I hadn't. Lost over $100 million. And so spent a number of years thinking about this scaling problem. How much should individuals and families invest in a risky opportunity? In those four or five years of thought, Hagani realized that passive investing, index investing, lowers costs, which we know, but in in more dynamic markets can lose money, particularly stocks, but that a black box strategy like long-term capital management can be complicated and costly. And after those huge losses in long-term capital management may not be appropriate for his family's wealth. Hagani launched Elm Partners and recently published a book with his colleague, James White. The book is titled The Missing Billionaires. I've been reading it, and it's a fascinating book, one that I'm going to add to the list on our website of recommended books on investing in the economy. It's an intriguing title, The Missing Billionaires. They point out, if we go back to the year 1900, the U.S. Census recorded 4,000 American millionaires. Hagani White said that if even a quarter of those millionaires in 1900 had started with, let's say, $5 million and invested it conservatively over the years, earning a reasonable rate of return, there should be 16,000 old money billionaires in the U.S. When in reality, according to Forbes, there's only 700 billionaires total, not one of which can trace their assets back to a millionaire ancestor in 1900. All that wealth dissipated over the decades. And it wasn't because the wealth was given away. It was lost, either spent or not invested appropriately. In the New York Times, I recently saw the obituary of Charles Feeney, who was a billionaire worth up to $8 billion. He passed away at age 92 and gave away all of his wealth. He found when he was age 50 and had homes in New York, London, Paris, Honolulu, San Francisco, Aspen, Colorado, and France, living an opulent lifestyle that it just didn't make him happy. In the biography written about him, Connor O'Clary wrote, he was beginning to have doubts about his right to have so much money. He set aside $2 million for himself, money for his kids, and then gave it all away. Most of it anonymously. There are not buildings named after Charles Feeney. Most billionaires don't do that. Victor Hagani lost a $100 million fortune in long-term capital. So they wrote this book because they point out that we spend a lot of time discussing what should we buy, which investment we should buy. But don't spend as much time on perhaps a more important question, how much should we put in one investment? I've discussed this in a number of episodes in the past. In episode 250, Investing Rule 1, Avoid Ruin, 
And so we need to build buffers, protections, additional savings. We get insurance. We build redundancies so that ultimately we can live a well-lived life and we avoid financial ruin. It can't just be stocks for the long run. Yes, stocks may outperform bonds over the long term, but would I put 100% of my portfolio in stocks? No way. I want multiple drivers and I want to understand what the building blocks of those return drivers are. What has to happen for me to be successful and not put all the eggs in one basket? Long-term capital management investments bounce back. They came back, but not for the limited partners that were wiped out or for the general partners. Hagani and White write, the short run always comes before the long run, and neither of us got to enjoy the rebound of these investments. The lesson, good investments plus bad sizing can result in cataclysmic losses. In their book, they share a study that Victor and a co-researcher, Richard Dewey, published in 2013 in the Journal of Portfolio Management. It did an experiment where there were 61 financially astute individuals playing a simple coin flipping game. And it was a virtual coin, and the coin was set up that it had a 60% chance of landing on heads. The participants were given $25 and allowed to bet any way that they they wanted to bet, how, how much they wanted to bet in each particular round. For 30 minutes, they could bet one after the other and decide how much they wanted to bet. This game had a 60% probability of success. It had a positive expected return. That meets our definition of an investment, an opportunity with a positive expected return. Yet 30% of the participants lost some money and 25% lost it all. Only 20% made it to the maximum that you could earn in the game of $250. Now you can try this yourself at elmwealth.com slash coin hyphen flip, C-O-I-N dash flip. That's at elmwealth.com. I tried it myself before I continued reading in the book. I wanted to kind of figure out, well, how would I go about this problem? I started with $25 and I started betting 10% of the amount that I had until it got over $30. And then I began to bet 20%. I played it two or three times. And the one time I got very close to $250. The other time it was around 100 one difference in the online game, you only get 10 minutes. And the longer you play, if, if you bet wisely, the higher the likelihood of getting to $250. But it, it can be frustrating because if the first series of coin flips went against me, then the amount would get less than $25. And then there was that temptation, well, I should just de- bet more so I can make up my losses. Interestingly, they found that 67% of the participants even though they knew that the coin was weighted 60% heads, they betted tails anyway, because after a series of heads, they thought that tails were due. But if something is weighted 60% chance of success, we do not want to bet on the thing that's only 40%. In the book, they equate the stock market. Statistically, they do the analysis to determine that the stock market is like a coin that's weighted 65% heads, 35% tails. So not that much different than the 60-40 experiment. Probably the most important takeaway from the book, for me and a principle that I've emphasized in earlier episodes of the show, particularly episode 250 on avoiding ruin and episode 356 on rebalancing. 
Hagani and White go through the example of a different game, a million-dollar portfolio, 25 coin flips, 60% chance of coming up heads. And they went through the analysis. They show a table of the weighted average expected wealth of different strategies of betting 1%, the portfolio value, each time up to 100%. Surprisingly, the expected wealth of betting 100% of the portfolio was $94 million. Why was that? Well, there is that very, very small chance of getting 25 heads in a row, but that's the expected value. The median outcome, the middle outcome was losing it all because if you bet 100% and it turns up tails, then, then you're completely out. But what about a more reasonable bet? What about 50% of the wealth being invested? Still aggressive. The expected value of investing 50% is $10.8 million. Pretty attractive. But the median amount, the median outcome would have been only $427,000. How is it that we can have a high expected value, but the median result is much, much less than that, actually losing money? We've touched on this in the past, particularly a paper by Old Peters and Murray Gelman called Evaluating Gambles Using Dynamics. And they point out that gambles, which is sort of a euphemism for an investment in economics, are often considered one-shot games. So maybe we'll do a Monte Carlo analysis. So every time we start over to see how it'll turn out. In real life, we're passing through time. We don't get another shot at it. If we bet our million dollars on a coin flip and we lose, we don't get to do it again. Or if we lose $100 million in our hedge fund, we don't get that money back. And so what happens through time is very important. And the amount of wealth we have depends on what is happening through that series of returns. And so when we invest 40 to 50%, let's say we're investing 50%, we have a million dollars, we flip the coin, it turns up heads. Now we have $1.5 million, 50% gain. But then we flip it again, the coin, and it comes up tails. When we lose 50%, now we're down to $750,000. So we get a lift when we get a head, but there's a drag when there's a tail. And this drag is hard to make up. If you've lost 50% of your portfolio, you have to gain 100% to get it back. This is called volatility drag. It's because of what is known as positive skewness. When something is positively skewed, the average expected outcome, like in the coin flip, will be higher than the median outcome because of the extreme upside events that happen that pulls up the average. And the higher the volatility, the more risky something is, the more skewed it gets. So betting 50% on a coin flip will have more volatility drag, more positive skewness, and the median outcome will be much, much less than the average outcome. This is important when we, we think about portfolio sizing, because the more risk we take, the more likely that the amount of wealth we have the median outcome will be much less than, let's say, the expected return or the expected outcome. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The way that we manage this volatility, this volatility drag, this positive skewness, is to make sure that we are positioned appropriately in the amount of risk that we're taking. They share a, a formula in the book that is derived from the work of Robert Merton, the economist, the Nobel Prize winning economist, the same that co-founded Long-Term Capital, developed a formula for helping us determine what percent of our wealth should we invest in a risky asset. What's surprising about this is that even though he developed the formula, he didn't use it. Well, maybe they did use it in long-term capital management, but the volatility turned out to be much greater than what they assumed in their models and the correlation between the different asset types such that the fund blew up because of the leverage. This formula is called the Merton share. It says that the optimal percentage of our wealth that we should invest is a function of the expected return after backing out the risk-free rate. So in the case of stocks, if the expected return is 8% and the risk-free rate on T-bills is 2%, then that's an expected return of 6%. So that's the numerator. And then we divide that by a volatility figure. In this case, the variance, which is the square of the standard deviation. It's a, a standard measure of volatility times a risk aversion factor, which I'll get to in a, in a moment. But if we take our risk aversion times the volatility of an asset and we divide that into the expected return, that gives the percentage wealth that we should have invested in stocks, for example. Based on that formula, the greater the volatility or the greater our risk aversion, the smaller the position size. That intuitively makes sense. Or the greater the expected return, the larger the position size. I actually plug some numbers into this formula 
So if we have an expected return of stocks of 8% and the risk-free rate is 2% and we assume the standard deviation of stocks is 19%, which what has been historically, so that's our volatility figure, and assume a risk aversion of 2 which again, I'll explain to in a moment. And it's one of the challenges with this is, how do I know what my risk aversion is? Am I a two or a three? We'll get to that. But if we assume the risk aversion is a two, the formula says we should have 83% in stocks and 17% in the risk-free asset. And if our our risk aversion is three, using those same assumptions, then we should only have 55% in stocks. So again, the greater our risk aversion, the lower we have in the risk asset. The other thing, though, that if the risk-free rate is higher, like it is today, we should have a lower amount in stocks. So if you assume an expected return for stocks of 8%, so it's 3% after backing out the 5% risk-free rate, and our risk risk aversion is 2, the formula says we should have 41% stocks, down from 83% in stocks when the risk-free rate was 2%. And then if our investment has an expected return, of 8% before backing out a 2% risk-free rate, but the volatility is 30%, the standard deviation, and a risk aversion of 2, then we should only have 17% in risky assets. Now, the idea here isn't so much for you to, to memorize the formula, but to understand, based on financial theory, how much should we have invested in risky assets? Clearly, it's a function of our risk aversion, but it's also a function of the level of volatility and the expected return. And so when an expected return is lower, when stocks are more expensive and their expected returns are lower, then we should have a lower allocation to stocks. Or when the risk-free rate is higher, such as today, when we can earn 2.5% plus inflation, investing in treasury inflation protection securities, then that suggests we should have less in stocks, and more in that risk-free asset. They also point out that if it's an active manager that's charging a 1% fee, that requires a higher expected return and potentially higher risk, which suggests a more concentrated portfolio. So the amount allocated to an index fund in stocks versus an active mutual fund, we would have a lower allocation in the mutual fund because the expected volatility would probably be higher because it's more concentrated. And the return might be lower because of the higher fees. So this gets to the whole concept of dynamic allocation. And that's how I've invested my entire professional career and and my personal assets. Being willing to adjust the allocation based on changing expectations and changing risk. There's theories that back that. Now, I've never used the Merton Share formula before. But it is an intriguing example of figuring out, well, what should be the appropriate allocation? Risk aversion is an individual thing, but it turns out that most people fall between a one and a five. And the average, as you would expect, is sort of a two to a three. In this example, we used a risk aversion factor of two and three. That's fairly normal. What's behind it? How do we determine a, a risk aversion? Well, it, it gets to this concept, what's called diminishing marginal utility of consumption. The more we have and the more we spend, the less happy we get by spending a little more or by having a little more. Having $1 million can be life-changing. Having $2 million is less life-changing than getting the first million. 
Likewise, eating our first pizza can feel wonderful. We had we had pizza in uh, the Bedford Park area of London. This best pizza I've ever had. First one. I probably would not have gotten as much joy out of the second one because I would be so full. That level of how full we are or happiness is known as utility. How much utility do we get? How much pleasure do we get out of getting more money or spending that money? And that really ties into our risk aversion. And it can change based on how old we are. It can change based on economic conditions, our recent experience. But it isn't something that we should ignore. We should be aware of our risk aversion. And it's not an exact science. In some ways, we have an intuitive feel for it. They, they give an example. They did a survey to sort of quantify what's the right amount of risk aversion. And they asked three questions. If you flip a coin, and this would be an equally weighted coin, so no bias. And if you flip it, you lose 10% of your wealth. And so then they ask, what percent would you need your wealth to grow if it went the opposite way? So heads, you lose 10%. Tails, how much do you need in order to actually play the game? And most people responded that they would need at least a 20% gain in order to do that. 20% upside for the risk of losing 10% on the downside. They asked how much you would need on the upside if you lost 20% on that coin flip. And most people, once the losses got greater, they needed more upside. They needed 50% upside in order to be willing to risk 20% of their wealth. And then they, they asked the opposite question. If the coin comes up heads, your wealth would increase five times, fivefold. How much downside would you be willing to risk of your wealth if it came up tails? And most people said 30%. And they, they quantified it. And at the end of the day, they, they realized that most people, based on that survey, come in with a risk aversion level of three. The authors find that they're two. So most of us are two to three. And, and so you could use this formula the Merton share formula to calibrate how much goes into stocks and use two to three as the risk factor. Now, some are going to be even more risk averse. So the higher the number, the higher the risk aversion factor, the less that gets invested in these risky assets. So what's our takeaway? Well, there's three. First, we need to understand our risk aversion. What's our level of contentment with our current level of spending and wealth? How much regret would we feel if we suffered a 20% loss, how much upside that we would need in order to take those type of, of decisions? And, and they're important because sometimes we get really entranced by the huge potential upside in investment, but it's very, very volatile. It can be enticing, but the higher the volatility, the lower we should invest. And that's our second point. Our allocation to risk or assets should be based on the expected return for those risk or assets, but what is it relative to the risk-free rate? And if we can earn 5% on cash right now, that means unless the expected return for stocks has increased, the hurdle rate to increase our allocation to stocks is much higher now. We should have more in lower-risk assets. And the theory backs that, and intuitively, that feels good. And then the third point is, the more risk we take, the greater the volatility, the greater the volatility drag. And the more as we pass through time, we should focus less on the expected return and more on the median outcome. Recognize that, yeah, maybe on average, this is what people did in terms of expectation, 
But if that average is pulled up because of some did incredibly well, then we should focus on the middle outcome. And it's not just investing. Think about writing a book. Very few bestsellers out there. But those that have a bestseller, their earnings are so much greater that they bring up the average. So the average earnings from a book is much higher than the median earnings. So we should focus on what's the median person doing and then make our decisions that way as opposed to what the average is. And this is especially important when it comes to to financial decisions as well as time. That's our discussion on position sizing, what percent of our wealth to invest in riskier assets. The book is titled The Missing Billionaires by Victor Hagani and James White. That's episode 451. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, in the economy. Have a great week.